Pan Am Boeing 727 is on its first leg of a three-leg trip from Miami to San Diego. How did weather cause this flight to crash into a neighborhood in New Orleans? Thank you to Kevin Shaw for recommending this episode. Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And Brendan's with us again. <laughs> I was really worried I wouldn't get an introduction. <laughs> Do just... you need... Well, you can introduce yourself. No. What kind of what kind of host are you? Rude. <laughs> You're on here hosting, too. You've hosted your own content. I do not host, I guest. Thank you. you guest, but sure. <laughs> but sure. But sure. Guest host. Welcome back, everybody. Hey, welcome back, because apparently that's my job. <laughs> <laughs> Today, we are talking about an airplane crash. Wow! No. Mind blown. This is the second part of our four-part series. Oh, wait. This is an aviation podcast? Oh, man. I got to get out of here. I'm in the wrong spot. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, that's Dang. what this has been about. Oh, I don't know anything about those. I thought I thought they were cars that had somehow gotten air, airborne. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> they fly. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure it's just magic. Yeah, I, I, you think I would have learned this in my flight test? Yeah, he passed. No, he, he passed his written, by the way. Congrats. Yeah, I didn't. They didn't tell you that part though. That <laughs> no, they didn't actually. They don't. They don't talk about how they fly. I do know about briefly. magnetic deviation though. So. Oh, good. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good. <laughs> okay. And but, VORs and. Well, I missed most of those questions. Okay, well, <laughs> at least you know what to study. VORs. <laughs> VORs. That mostly comes into play anyways when you start doing cross-country. Anyway. What are we covering today, Nick? Today? I told you, a plane crash. Dude, I'm not talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> today we are covering Pan American Airways Flight 759. It's so weird when you say Pan American. Pan American. It's a Pan American. <laughs> or Pan Am. Thank Pan you. Pan Am. It's Pan Am. Flight 759. Or Clipper. Their call sign. That's so weird to me. Their call signs. Uh, the one weird thing about Pan Am is that they really liked nautical things. Yeah, that's how they got their start, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were they they actually had a lot of nautical stuff. But before we get into that, I want to give you all a brief update on what happened in meteorology history since EA sixty six. A meteorologist named Tetsuya Theodore, or Ted Fujita, was from Japan, but had his research career at the University of Chicago studying severe weather phenomena. You may recognize his name if you know anything about tornadoes, or have watched the iconic movie Twister. The Fujita scale is what is used to describe the intensity of tornadoes, the phenomena he was most known for researching. After EA-66, though, he worked with the NTSB and Eastern Airlines to further study exactly what happened in the atmosphere on that dreadful day. The downdraft that brought down that 727 was specific. It was sudden, which led to the development of the term downburst, and Fujita determined that cells of downburst can be extremely dangerous to planes, especially in the crucial phases of flight like landing and takeoff, where you're already at a low speed. This research did lead to the development of the original low-level wind shear alert system by the FAA in 1976. Fujita continued his research on this downburst phenomenon and determined that these can come in two varieties, microbursts and macrobursts. Because the storm for EA-66 was small and sudden, it was classified as a microburst in his research, but this research was not immediately accepted by the aviation community, 
And this is where today's story begins. It is. So this took place on July 9th of 1982. It was also a 727-200 with the tail number November 4737. Huh. Yeah, it was had 737 in the tail number. <laughs> this was to be a scheduled flight from Miami to San Diego with stopovers in New Orleans and Las Vegas along the way. The captain for this flight was Kenneth McCullers. He was 45 years old. He had 11,727 hours total. Yes, 727. Hot. Of which 10,595 hours were on the 727. So almost all of his time was on the 727. The first officer was Donald Pierce. He was 32 years old. He had 6,127 hours, of which 3,914 hours were in the 727. So more than half of his hours were on the 727. And the flight engineer was Leo Noon. He was 60 years old, one of the oldest members we've ever talked about of a flight crew. He had 19,904 hours total. That's a lot. Of which 10,508 hours were in the 727. So a lot of experience between all of them, actually. And the captain was the most experienced on the 727 still. We pick up our story in New Orleans, where this will... Uh, where they're already, they've already made one leg of their trip. We've been to this airport. We have. Except Brendan? No, I have not been there. Yeah. Should well, go sometime, It's going to be new for all of us if we go to that airport because... Now it's new. Yeah, they opened the brand new, new terminal. terminal. Yeah. Yeah. We were in the old terminal. We had to go to the old one. It <laughs> was so old. Sorry. Yeah, it was old. Very old. <laughs> I've seen the photos. Yeah, it was old. Anyways. At 3.58 p.m. and 48 seconds, flight 759 taxied from the gate at New Orleans with seven crew members, one non-revenue passenger in the jump seat, and 137 passengers. What does that mean, non-revenue passenger? It's typically a transferring crew member. Oh, okay. So a person who belonged to the airline that was just catching a, a ride? Yes. Okay. Basically. Before leaving the gate, the flight crew had received the ATIS information Foxtrot, which provided weather data that included winds as calm, visibility of six miles with haze, and clouds mostly broken. So, pretty decent, nice day. ATIS would be automatic terminal information system. The estimated gross takeoff weight of the airplane was 170,000 pounds. So flaps were set for 15, and because of the high weight and the high temperature outside, which was 90 degrees, by the way. Yikes. The crew had to take off on runway 10, which was the longer runway at New Orleans. And their rotation speed, or VR, would be 138 knots. At 3.59 p.m. and 3 seconds, the first officer requested a wind check, and ATC informed them it was 040 at 8 knots. So, heading of 040 at 8 knots. So, low winds. It wasn't calm anymore, but low winds. The crew completed the takeoff and departure briefings before turning onto the active runway for takeoff. While taxiing, at 4.02 p.m. and 34 seconds, air traffic control advised another airplane of low-level wind shear alerts in the northeast quadrants of the airport, and Flight 759 had heard these calls. That's using that new alert system. Yes. The Low-Level Wind Shear Alert System, or LLWSAS. I think it was installed at 110 between its development and 1987. At 4.03 p.m. and 33 seconds, the first officer requested another wind check. ATC reported wind now 070 at 17 knots with peak gusts to 23 knots. So all of a sudden, winds are shifting. He also said, we have low-level wind shear alerts in all quadrants. 
appears to be a frontal, which he meant front, passing overhead right now. The captain then advised the first officer to, quote, let your airspeed build up on takeoff, end quote, which, I mean, makes sense, and said they would turn off the air conditioning packs for takeoff. This would help, you know, power. In- yeah, increase the power. Ability. Increase the power. At 4.06 p.m. and 22 seconds, the flight informed the tower that it had that it was ready for takeoff. Two seconds later, air traffic control cleared the flight for takeoff, and at 4.06 and 30 seconds, the first officer acknowledged the clearance. This acknowledgement would be the last radio call that the crew would ever give. At 4.07 and 8 seconds, while the flight crew were completing the final items on the takeoff checklist, ATC cleared Eastern Airlines Flight 956 to land on runway 10 and advised wind 070 at 17 knots. Heavy Boeing just landed, said 10-knot wind shear at 100 feet on final. That's pretty dangerous, at 100 feet. Yeah, just suddenly losing 10 knots. That yeah, that you expect to be there. Yeah. Oh, that's you think nice. that's bad? Yeah. At 4.08 and 57 seconds, Flight 759 began its takeoff roll. As speeds built, the V-speeds were called out by the captain, so V1 and rotate. He also called out 80 knots. At this point, we switch to witnesses. According to witnesses, Flight 759 lifted off about 7,000 feet down the runway and climbed in a wings-level attitude to an altitude of about 100 to 150 feet and then began to descend. The takeoff pitch during takeoff and climb was described as normal for a 727. 16 witnesses described the plane's pitch attitude as it, as it exited the airport boundary and before it initially struck some trees, as a nose-up attitude, and one said the nose-up angle was quite steep. Six witnesses located in the concourses of the airport had rear views of the plane, and the consensus was that the plane was in a 7 to 10 degree nose-up attitude as it descended. Eight witnesses... Ascended? Descended. They were going in... Wait, 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 wait. I missed some of that. Are you lost? Nose is pointing up. A little bit. But But the plane is falling. Oh, that's what you mean. Yes. I, I thought you were a, meaning, like, from their takeoff. It was takeoff. They were attempting to climb. They got to 100, 150 feet, and then witnesses said they were 7 to 10 degrees nose up as the airplane began falling. Just falling? From the sky. Okay. So that was the descent. Yep. Eight witnesses had a profile view of Clipper 759 and had varying reports of of attitude of the airplane. Some of them, there was one person that said 45 degrees nose up. That's pretty high. And then said the nose came back down. Yeah, that, I mean... That's, like, almost impossible. No, it's not impossible, but that's... But it varied from other witnesses. It's pretty steep, though. It's very steep. I don't think they knew what they were talking about. They, they probably fell asleep in geometry class. Yeah, yeah. They, were, they were the only witness that said that. It's okay, they all can't all be perfect. No. Clipper 759 crashed into a residential area and was destroyed during impact, explosion, and subsequent fire. The accident occurred at... 4.09 p.m. All 145 people on board perished, and eight people on the ground perished as well. The plane initially struck trees located 2,376 feet beyond the end of the runway, at about 50 feet above the ground, where it left several pieces of debris at the bottoms of the tree. The airplane gradually tilted wing left as it impacted a second set of trees. It was about six degrees of wing left down as it impacted the second set of trees just beyond the first set, leaving pieces of the leading edge flaps and trailing edge flaps. The airplane then struck the ground with the left wing first at a 105-degree left wing bank, 
where it then rolled over and came to rest 4,610 feet from the end of the runway, where it exploded, striking several houses and coming to rest in a residential area. One of the survivors on the ground in one of the houses was a baby in a crib who was protected by falling debris. The mother and sister in the house passed, though, from the impact, but the father was at work when the accident happened. At least the baby wasn't orphaned. Yeah, no Also, kidding. I guess it's good that they were protected from falling de- by falling debris? Yes. Pretty interesting. So, this 105 degree bank, let me put things in perspective. They're moving relatively quick. That means, yes, that means they were partially inverted. But when they struck the second set of trees, they were only at about a six degree bank. So they were at, they said, two to three degrees bank when they struck the first set of trees. Then a six degree bank wing left when they struck the second set of trees. 2,000 feet later, not much further when you're traveling as fast as they were, they were nearly inverted. So the airplane quickly rolled over once the wing hit the trees. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. They lost all lift over the left wing. Because they had no left wing, and then they all of a sudden had all this lift over the right wing. Yep. Once again, the NTSB pretty immediately turned to weather as a cause for this accident, and their examination was centered on the time span just before Flight 759's takeoff roll up until their impact with the trees. Based on a weather radar scope photograph at 408 from Slidell, Louisiana, in the weather radar, investigators determined that a level 3 storm was present in the area. Reports between 401 and 409 from four planes, Republic Flight 632, Texas International Flight 974, Southwest Airlines Flight 680, and a Cessna citation with tail number November 31 Mike Tango, all led to the determination that there was one cell over the departure end of runway 10, another between 2 and 5 nautical miles east-northeast of the airport, and another 5 nautical miles southwest of the airport. And these were all level 3 cells. Based on a ton of equations, from relationships between radar reflectivity, visibility, and rainfall rate, investigators determined that as Clipper 759 was taking off, the rain was falling at half an inch per hour, then 1.8 inches per hour, then 2.1 inches per hour, then all the way up to 5.7 inches per hour at rotation. Which is crazy. Yeah. That's six inches of water falling from the sky every hour. And we're talking from one end of the runway to the other. Yeah. It went from half an inch to six inches. It's a lot. Per hour. That's crazy. Now for winds. This airport had a host of wind sensors around the airport, plus the newly implemented since EA-66 low-level wind shear alert system. The center field wind sensor over the course of the time period we were looking at consistently recorded an airspeed of about 16 knots at 070. However, about two seconds after the plane hit the trees, a low-level wind shear alert system alert went off around the east sensor, and the ground controller recorded an airspeed difference. The center sensor was at 080 at 15 knots, and the east sensor was at 310 at 6 knots. This means that the headwind of 14 knots that the plane was experiencing dropped to a 5-knot tailwind, a difference of 19 knots. But that's just based on the sensors. Witness reports in the area said that whole trees were moving, and the Federal Meteorological Handbook says that it takes between 28 to 33 knots to move whole trees. So let's assume the same direction of wind as the east sensor and a speed of 30 knots, somewhere in the middle of those guidelines. This means that the magnitude of headwind loss was actually more like 40 knots that they lost. Investigators were more apt to accept this number because the placement of the east sensor had trees to the northeast and south which may have decreased the recorded wind speed measurement. 
That's great placement. Right. It was actually within regulations for some bizarre reason. Hmm. With I airports mean, surrounded by trees. Yeah. I mean, you can't. Yeah. You can't no, really do. You There's a lot of those. You'd be surprised. You can't really do much about that, I guess. But maybe put the sensor in a different spot. I don't know. But I wonder how many more wind shear alerts they would have gotten had there not been trees around the sensor. Anyway. Investigators had assistance in this research from a newly formed project, the Joint Airport Weather Studies Project, a.k.a. JAWS. Ba-bum. I knew it was coming. Ba-bum. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll stop. Thank you. You, you won't. Ba-bum, ba-bum. <laughs> Da-da-da! This project was formed from the FAA, the National Center for Atmospheric Research, and the University of Chicago, a.k.a. Ted Fujita. And their goal was specifically to study microbursts and their threat to aircraft. They had actually just set up that summer recording microburst activity at Denver Stapleton Airport, where in the summer of 1982, the year of this accident, they recorded 99 microbursts within 10 miles of Stapleton. That's That's a lot. (laughs) That sounds like Denver. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. Because there were no sensors for vertical wind speed at the accident airport, their research and studies were used to estimate downdrafts of a bit less than 5 feet per second at 50 feet in altitude and less than 10 feet per second at 100 feet of altitude. Entering this condensed downdraft at the end of the runway cut Flight 759's headwind by almost 40 knots, and they were getting pushed down, very similar circumstances to EA-66, except that this time they were on takeoff, an arguably even more dangerous stage of the flight to be in for this to happen. To put it in more simple terms, the lift under the wings went from takeoff levels of lift to suddenly whatever lift would be if they were going 40 knots slower, which is less than that needed to maintain flight at that particular attitude. Investigators go on to describe another difference from EA-66. Because they were taking off and climbing, Pan American 759 was less likely to detect the sensation and symptoms of wind shear, and by entering the downdraft at more of a steep angle than by landing, the plane was actually in the downdraft longer, which caused more of a change in angle of attack. The investigators determined that recovering from such a situation hinges on immediate recognition of circumstances and a rapid pitch change to a, quote, perhaps unaccustomed attitude to immediately decrease the airplane's descent flight path angle, end quote. It also doesn't help that they were flying into increasingly heavy rain. A report from the University of Southern California found that if a pilot were looking at the instrument that would indicate an impending impact, it would take 4.25 seconds to respond based on recognition of instrument deviation, understanding what it means, and reacting with the controls. In this instance, the rain, turbulence, and requirement of unaccustomed forces on the control column all would have slowed down that reaction time. The investigators determined from all available evidence that the crew reacted in six seconds, which was probably helped by the ground proximity warning system sounding. Even that wasn't enough, though. They determined that, quote, the pilot's actions to correct the airplane's nose-down pitching moment and descending flight path at least equaled the response which would have been expected under the prevailing conditions, end quote. So were they supposed to put the nose down or increase up, nose up? up? Okay, so then my... My assumption at what happened is completely incorrect then. Because they were, they should have been nose up because they were trying to climb out, right? Yes. Yes. But they were pushed down by the microburst? Correct. So they were nose down instead of nose up. They were still nose up. They were still nose up, but they should have been uncomfortably nose up in order to get out of it. So it's different from what would happen if they were in a stall. Yes. It was an 
it was a stall in a sense, but it wasn't something they could control. Even if they had put the nose down, they didn't have the altitude needed to, nope. to save the airplane. And actually, in this case, pulling the nose up would have been the only thing that would have maybe saved them. And they determined that it only would have saved them if they reacted immediately. And they reacted with normal human reaction time, which is not immediately. Yes. Well, probably because they didn't really know what was happening. Human so. factor in the, and I can tell you for a fact, 5.8 seconds they had before impact from the time that that downdraft occurred was not enough time to figure it out. Nope. It's like all of a sudden you're being pushed down and your aircraft doesn't have any lift. Yep. That's a great feeling. I'm, sh- I'm oh, sure. it just and I, you're less than 200 feet from the ground. Yeah, that's really really horrifying. Honestly, that's one of the scariest things in aviation to me. Is a microburst. At the end of the runway. Yep. No matter whether you're taking off or landing, that is just scary. So why did they do it? Investigators then decided to look at the captain's actions in even deciding to take off. Could he have chosen a different runway? Well, no. Because they were so heavy and it was hot, they had to take that runway. So, the flight operation manual for Pan Am did say, though, that if there is a storm within 15 miles of the airport, the captain must evaluate their options to avoid encountering a storm and all that comes with it. It is their responsibility as captain to decide, based on the severity of the weather, what is the best course of action. The flight folder he was given was valid for the time and did say that storms implied possible low-level wind shear. Before takeoff, ATC advised the captain that there were low-level wind shear alert system alerts all over the airport and that a front was passing over and the airport was smack dab in the middle. The captain acted accordingly by asking the first officer to build airspeed on takeoff, meaning he did hear that report. He acknowledged it, basically. The weather radar on board in the cockpit also conveyed sufficient information for the captain to make a good decision about the best course of action. I thought investigators at this point were implying that the captain was to blame, but then they took a step back. They determined that there was not enough known to the aviation meteorological community to understand this kind of weather phenomena and low-level wind shear, and that the captain did the best he could with what he and the rest of the community had to understand. Right. Now, to be clear, what I didn't make clear earlier is that the first officer was the pilot flying. The captain was pilot monitoring. But, per Pan Am's procedures, he had to make all the big decisions when it came to weather. He is pilot in command. Yep. That's all I got. Some interesting notes as well. You might notice that that she said that there were that this was a level three storm. Now you might remember back in EA sixty six, we didn't have levels. There was no classification for thunderstorms. That was one of the recommendations. So between that crash and this one, they came up with a whole way of classifying storms. There's classification systems for all kinds of weather phenomena. There are yes. hurricane categories. And the Fujita scale is used to categorize tornadoes. Yep. A couple of interesting notes. One of them being that there was two asterisks next to the passenger death count. Oh. For for a note that says the coroner of Jefferson Parish, Louisiana, issued a certificate of death for a seven and a half month fetus, which is not included above. I was also going to mention who one of the witnesses was. Oh. John Stamos. We talked about it. The really, really coincidental person that was there. John Stamos? No. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, that'd be really cool. (laughs) No. Here's how interesting this gets. One of these witnesses, I'm reading this straight from the report. One of these witnesses, a flight data specialist and furloughed airline pilot, observed the takeoff from the tower cab 
That could not be more specific at just the right time. Specific. That's why I said specific. So was he furloughed due to another pandemic? Probably not. I don't know. But also, I'm like, I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to be there. And he, when he described the plane, he said that he saw it get to the altitude to he where it was eye level. To eye level, which is about right because the tower is 126 feet. And then he looked away. And then he looked away. So he missed the whole thing. And the airplane only got to 100 to 150 feet. They don't know exactly, actually, what the altitude was. So I'm like, not only was your report vaguely useless... But also, you probably weren't supposed to be there. I'm really... Also, are you even a witness if you didn't even <laughs> see it crash? I would be really interested, actually, in the FDR data for this airplane, because... They graphed it. It's scanned. I poorly. know. Because altitude, while you might have radio altitude, the altimeter altitude, I, would be, I wouldn't be surprised that it isn't correct at all. Because when you fly into a microburst, what happens is the pressure changes very rapidly. And I would I would be really interested, actually, to know what their altitude read on their altimeter. If it read even, I mean, remotely accurately, I'm impressed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So findings. They found that the flight folders provided to the crew with their flight plan contained the correct weather briefing and forecasts were current. They found that the gross weight of Flight 759 required the captain to use runway 10 for takeoff. They found that at 409, VIP level 3 weather echo were located to the northeast part of the airport and east of the departure end of runway 10. That was the level of storm. So not yes. only is it a strong storm, it's also a VIP. It's a VIP. <laughs> wow. I know, that's what it says in the report. It has access. It is a very important player in this. Oh, dear nice. Lord, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. What they did say was that lightning and thunder were not occurring before or during the takeoff. The most, they found that the most probable rainfall amounts at the time of the accident were half an inch an hour at the departure end of the runway, and at and 1.8 inches per hour east of the departure end of the runway. The maximum possible rainfall rates near the departure end of the runway was the area of, was in the area of 5.7 inches per hour. That's a lot. They found that between the time the airplane lifted off and the time it reached the tree line on Williams Boulevard, the plane experienced a decreasing headwind shear of 38 knots and a 7 foot per second descent at 100 foot AGL. So... 100 feet above the ground, they suddenly lost 38 knots and were being pushed down at 7 feet per second. Performance analysis showed that 5.9 seconds before the accident, if the pilot flying had been able to increase the plane's pitch and maintain the indicated airspeed, then they theoretically could have maintained 95 feet. This analysis is based on instantaneous reaction time and does not account for human human or other outside factors. So like we said, and they actually said that in the report, at least... They had the wherewithal to say, that is, if this was like a perfect robotic, perfect robotic situation where the airplane just lifted instantaneously when the wind hit. They found that the wind shear that affected the flight was not detected by the low-level wind shear alert system until after the flight had left the runway. As I said, it recorded it two seconds after they struck trees. Yep. 
They found that the airplane was not equipped with, and was not required to be equipped with, the instrument system that could detect wind shear events and display feedback on how to counter it. So, essentially they're saying on the instruments, having the flight director lead the airplane through the wind shear, based on wind shear data the airplane collects, they didn't have that. And it wasn't required. Yeah, and who knows if it would have been as effective, I really, effective enough. Yeah. When we get to the recommendations, they bring up some really interesting ones, actually, but we'll, we'll get to that, that have to do similar similarly with that. They found that the first officer was not able to arrest the airplane's descent rate in sufficient time to prevent the accident. I feel like that one's just, duh. Obvious? That's basically what the whole, the whole reason the report exists, was because he didn't have time to react. They found that the captain had received adequate weather information from the company and air traffic control to make adequate weather assessments for New Orleans. They found that according to Pan Am's procedures, the captain is responsible for evaluating and making decisions based on weather information, and he is responsible for choosing the best course of action. They found that the weather radar at New Orleans was able to read precipitation, but was not able to read differences in precipitation amounts or density. That's not good. No, so basically it could tell you, hey, rain over there. There's rain, but we don't know how bad it is. It would give you like a block. It was like like if you were uh, like a modern radar, it would just be a big green blob saying here's some rain. But it couldn't have like the but green, it's like yellow, orange, red. Yeah. yeah, it couldn't tell you how dense it was or where the heavier precipitation was. So in other words, they don't actually know how dense it was. They found that air traffic control did not release an ATIS message reflecting the 2:55 p.m. surface weather observation. However, the flight crew had reviewed the 2.55 p.m. surface weather observation in the operations office, so it was no factor. So ATIS information didn't change when they got a big weather change, but they had already reviewed the weather anyways. They found that ATIS information Gulf, which reflected the 4.03 p.m. weather information, was issued before the flight had taken off, though they had not, the crew had not received information Gulf, but instead the previous ATIS information. They did have all the pertinent information contained in Gulf, however. So it didn't change enough for it to matter. They found that the low-level wind shear alert system, West Sensor, had been vandalized and was inoperative. What? However, the inoperative West Sensor was not a causal factor in the accident. Which is why I didn't bring it up. Yes. But, like, why would you vandalize something that belongs to an airport? And how? Because it's fun, I guess. Well, back then they probably, like, didn't have fences and stuff. No, they have the fences. Airport. Nope, they... Definitely probably, and it probably wasn't as guarded as it is now. Well, no, but even security then. was not as no, no, absolutely, strict. Absolutely not, but still, like, I don't know why that of all things to vandalize. Why did Maybe they just vandalize? didn't know what it was, and they were like, "Yeah, let's go, like, yeah. uh, yeah, kick this thing or something." Of course, I don't know what the sensor looks like or how big <laughs> it is. I don't know. Anyways, it wasn't working. It's like, why do people vandalize trains? Because they're big and they're there. So Look at my dumb graffiti. I don't know if it was big and it was there. It was on the other side of a fence and it might have been small. They found that the captain was aware that low-level wind shear alert system alerts were occurring periodically around the airport. So ATC. he knew there was wind shear. ATC had reported that, so yes. They alerted of the alerts. Yes, the alerts were alerted. Gotcha. <laughs> yes. They found that according to Pan Am procedures in their operations manual... Low-level wind shear alert system wind information is strictly informational and no action is required unless deemed appropriate by the pilot. Yeah, so basically they they had the low-level wind shear alert system information, but per Pan Am's procedures and their operations manual, the pilots didn't have to do anything about it. It was purely to it, was, it was told to them that it's purely informational and the pilots can do whatever they want with that information. I, I feel like that's a little dangerous. 
Like, yes. Oh, uh, yeah, it's not that bad. <laughs> Let's just go ahead and take off anyway. To Which be- clearly didn't happen in this accident. Well, and but- they took the correct response of, you know, adding a few knots yeah. yes. on the takeoff. But to be clear, it was still not very well understood in the industry That's how low level wind shears and microbursts affected airplanes. That's very true. We were still learning how to fly airplanes, even in the 80s. Even Doesn't now. that make you feel Even so now. much better about that? <laughs> well, right now we're trying to teach computers how to fly airplanes. And that is becoming increasingly more important, but also dangerous. Thank you, Airbus. Oh, yeah, you guys just covered that. Uh, 447. Yes. Yeah. Yep. 447, yeah. Yep. And now they just made an A350 taxi and take off on its own. So who needs pilots? Who needs pilots? You still need pilots. Oh, yeah. Just have for being completely also, facetious. Just gets Joe Schmo off the street to sit in the cockpit and monitor error messages. Yes. Oh no. <laughs> they found that the captain used his weather radar before takeoff to check the weather along his departure path. The rain east of the runway would have attenuated the radar pulse of the plane's weather radar, and that may have been sufficient to prevent contouring of the cell activity along the takeoff path. They found that the captain's decision to take off was reasonable given the information that was available to him. That is the final I finding. think that's exactly what I said. Yes, basically. They, they said basically all, all the information that he was given, which technically was all the legal information he needed to have, he didn't make a decision that was unreasonable. He absolutely made one that was reasonable, and it was legal. And fatal. Turns out, but they didn't know that that would be. The I industry know. didn't know that it would be. Okay, probable cause. The probable cause verbatim as per usual. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of the accident was the airplane's encounter during the liftoff and initial climb phase of the flight with a microburst-induced wind shear which imposed a downdraft and a decreasing headwind, the effects of which the pilot would have had difficulty recognizing and reacting to in time for the airplane's descent to be arrested before its impact with trees. Contributing to the accident was the limited capability of current ground-based low-level wind shear detection technology to provide definitive guidance for controllers and pilots for use in avoiding low-level wind shear encounters. So, at least they bring out the fact that they do think, they do believe that microbursts and low-level wind shear were the contributing factors and that this, we'll get into this now, but they believe that that heavily needs to be fixed and studied. And so we'll continue our series. Yes. That said... Quite a few of these recommendations I'm about to read are actually about the CVR, which we didn't talk about. We'll talk about it now. So they recommended creating a program to check the United Control Corporation's V557 CVRs. There's a specific. They wanted to check samples of random recorders in operation to verify if a problem existed and that they are working within design specs, and if regular problems are found to implement a regular maintenance procedure for these. To be clear, these are tape recorders. So they use the foil tape. And when they pulled the CVR data, so the FDR data pulled just fine. When they pulled the CVR data, it was really hard to hear and understand. It was very broken. It was very scratchy and nasty. So they were worried that that was a problem. They recommended after a specified period of not more than two years, require the removal of all UCC V557 CVRs and install suitable replacements. So they wanted to just have the industry completely replace them. They sounded a little bitter. Yeah. Just a little bit. You think they sound bitter now? They recommended amending 14 CFR Part 121.343 so that after a specified date, all turbojet aircraft manufactured prior be required to have digital data recorders installed. 
They just wanted to do away with tape recorders after this. They and were have like, digital. this is so frustrating. They gotta go. <laughs> I mean, do you blame Whoever them? was writing the report no. took a hit at the whole industry and was like, get rid of tape recorders now. <laughs> they were mad. And again, they recommended as soon after the aforementioned amendment as possible, require that all FOIL recorders be replaced with suitable digital recorders that record more extensive data. Which I do believe they do. Oh, yeah. Now. Oh, yeah. We use digital recorders now. And they are solid state drives. And I really wish that the episode we recorded that had my history lesson of data recorders was not lost to the abyss. I know. Sorry, Chris Stellard. Again. (laughs) They recommend reviewing all low-level wind shear alert system systems to determine and correct any deficiencies such as the West sensor at New Orleans. In its defense, it was vandalized. Yeah. So fix it, make sure it's working correctly. Fix it, yeah. But they wanted to make sure that there was a way to determine when one's not working and fix it right away. Like an immediate feedback. Yes, yes. Like an out-of-order message. Like, I'm not picking up anything. They recommended making appropriate distribution to the aviation community of information regarding current location, capabilities, and availability of low-level wind shear alert system sensors. Basically, they wanted to make it more common knowledge about when you're operating an airport, where the sensors are, what they're capable of reading, and if they're actually available or not. So if one of them is not working, make that part of the ATIS information or what have you. They recommend a recording output data from the low-level wind shear alert system or sensors for reconstruction purposes of events and for studying for improvements. So studying low-level wind shear effects and studying low-level wind shear patterns. They recommended emphasizing to pilots to make prompt reports of wind shear for the safety of other departing and approaching traffic. So if you encounter it, say something right away. Which I think they generally do for the most part. For the most part. They recommended requiring that ATIS advisories be amended promptly to provide current wind shear information and other hazardous weather information in the terminal area, and that all aircraft be advised by blind broadcast about the new information. This actually exists now. If the if the ATIS information for an airport changes, the tower controller will generally say, attention all aircraft, information X is current. X-ray. We'll replace X with a letter. It can be X-ray. You're welcome. Thanks. He meant variable. I was using the vari- the, the mathematical variable term. X-ray. X-ray. <laughs> yes. That one is actually, I do think that one's actually really important because that one is very much in place today. I, I hear it all the time out here at the airport I work at where... All of a sudden, they'll just spit out attention all aircraft information. India's current, whatever, you know, and then carry on. They did, and they brought that up because in this flight, information Gulf became current before the airplane took off, and they didn't have that. And didn't it, end up being a factor, anyways. But but if it had changed, it could have been crucial. Right. They could have had to wait to listen to it, and by that time, the storm could have passed. Yep, could have saved their lives, or at least the microburst wouldn't have been quite as bad. Where they it's very true. departed. Who knows. They recommended further evaluation to current equipment use to properly identify unsafe low-level conditions for aircraft. They recommended studying the feasibility of establishing aircraft operational limits based on low-level wind shear alert systems. Basically, they wanted to use any data they received to figure out how that affects airplanes and then make that part of the operational limitations on airplanes. They recommended making necessary changes to display low-level wind shear alert system wind output data as components to the runway center line. So making it where it would actually tell you what that means compared to your literal center line takeoff or approach 
They recommended using the data obtained from the JAWS project to quantify low-level wind shear hazard in terms of effect on airplane performance. Evaluate the effect of the low-level wind shear alert system and evaluate the aerodynamic penalties of precipitation on aircraft performance. This one's kind of weird because they recommended evaluating what rain does to the aerodynamics of an airplane. What precipitation does. So they specifically mention this briefly in the analysis section where they didn't know how water affects the airfoil, like the actual cross-section cross of a wing's properties to generate lift. Mm-hmm. So they just asked for more research on it. Sure. And if when it... it started raining really, really heavily, I can kind of understand why they would want that. Ultimately, it was really the winds that played a factor here. Yes, and that's what they determined to be the prevailing factor, but they didn't have enough science to back them up to say there's no effect from this much rain on the airfoil. Because does it change the cross-section of the wing? Does that affect its ability to generate lift? Right. If so, that could be a problem in the future. Right. They recommended using that data to develop training aids for pilots and develop realistic microburst wind models for incorporation into simulator training and promote the development of airborne wind shear detection devices for airplanes. So something that actually detects wind shear in the airplane. That was also a recommendation on the previous episode. They recommended expediting the development of testing and installation of advanced Doppler weather radar to detect hazardous wind shear near airports. They recommended encouraging the industry to expedite the development of flight director systems such as MFD Delta A and heads-up display type displays, which provide enhanced pitch guidance logic, which responds to inertial speed and airspeed changes, and ground proximity, then encourage operators to install them. So I thought this was really interesting. This is 1982. They're talking about making heads-up displays part of the cockpit, making it a regular thing, and encouraging all the operators to install them, and incorporating into those heads-up displays inertial and airspeed and such data when it comes to wind shear and telling them how to correct for that and how to help keep the airplane airborne and stable. And I think that's really valuable. But even today, heads-up displays are not standard in most cockpits. They recommended to air carriers that they modify training in simulators to reproduce wind shear models, including microbursts, urging takeoff approach and other critical phases of flight. So basically saying they want to make sure that people are trained how to handle microburst situations. You know, spend simulator time encountering microburst situations on critical phases of flight, landing, takeoff, approach, all those things, and handling it correctly. And they recommended advising air carriers to increase the emphasis in training programs on the effective use of all available weather information sources and provide added guidance to pilots regarding operational decisions involving takeoff and landing operation, which would expose a flight to weather conditions which could be hazardous. They used every bit of information they could, basically, but they're saying... But there's more, and you should they should really train pilots on how to use everything and incorporate that into their decision making, especially when volatile situations like microbursts and sudden wind shear and wind changes occur. That's it for recommendations, and that's it for Pan Am Flight 759. Right on. Yeah. Numero dos. Come back next week. Oh. By the way, thank you to Kevin Shaw for recommending this episode. Yeah. Yeah, we kind of forgot about that. Also, thank you for recommending Air France 447, too. Which we forgot to mention. We forgot, and I 
looked at our list and went, um, oops. We were planning to do that episode anyways, which is why I think it didn't cross any of our minds because yeah. we were like, that one was already on the schedule. We just added your name to it because we were like, well, we now we can make that one a recommendation. But then we totally forgot when we actually got there. All the social media and the website and stuff have credit to you, but we completely forgot. So we're sorry. Sorry. That was a really, really hectic week. So we were like, yeah. Uh. Tune in next week for the next segment of this series, also recommended by Kevin. Yeah. Have a great week. Be safe. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.